Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Today's episode is brought to you in association with Perkbox. Perkbox has helped improve the engagement of over 300,000 employees. From measuring engagement to providing inventive ways to reward your superstar workers and support your team's well-being. Find out more at perkbox.com. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. If you're interested in work culture, you've come to the right place. There's been over 250,000 streams of Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat in the last month. We're obviously building something of a movement. I think we've got a cracker for you today. Dr. Pippa Grange was the England team's head of team and culture at the last Men's World Cup finals. And today she exclusively speaks out for the first time. This is a discussion that was partly recorded at the Good Day at Work event in Manchester. That's hosted and staged by Robertson Cooper, and it was partly recorded at a Twitter event that I hosted Pippa at. There's a full transcript of this discussion live at eatsleepworkrepeat.com. During the last World Cup, as the nation gradually started believing in the prospects of a team whose members had surprised us with their flair, inspiration and calm demeanour, there was a wonderful newspaper article that garnered loads of attention about the secrets of their transformation. The piece introduced us to one of the quiet backroom staff responsible for overhauling the mindset of the England team. In recent years, players in the national team had always worn the heavy expectations on them, like a sort of heavy overcoat. In the recent past, those called up, like Raheem Sterling, had commented that pressure created by fan aggression had stifled their ability to express themselves creatively. I think it's fair to say the English nation was collectively astonished to see a very different England team mentality this time round. And as the Guardian article showed, Dr. Pippa Grange was one of the people responsible. It was a great honour to interview Pippa at the Good Day at Work event in Manchester. Robertson Cooper always put on consistently incredible inv- events. Such was the interest in the outstanding lineup of speakers, the event was fully sold out. Pippa spoke to me about the importance of cultural moments. This was a really big takeaway for me, thinking about the moments that really anchor in what culture is about. She talks about the very first thing she does to build a winning culture what it's like to be in a dressing room before a huge game and the realities of being a woman in the man's world of sport. She also talks about the single thing that's way more important than positivity and how a big stressful adventure can be consistent with wellness. This conversation's outstanding. It was recorded across two interviews, one in Manchester, one in Spain. I've edited it together so that there's no duplication other than one tiny moment when we mention the inflatable unicorns that are pictured in the Guardian article, and we mention them twice, and I leave the repetition in, it's tiny, but her subsequent answer was quite different, hence uh, I didn't edit that out. Here's my discussion with sports psychologist Dr Pippa Grange. Pippa, thank you so much. So I've been trying to get Pippa to talk to me for the last year and a half, and we've had a couple of failed attempts, so I'm absolutely thrilled to have you here today. I wonder if you could kick off. Could you just tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, sure. I am an English woman born in Yorkshire. I've spent, I consider myself a global citizen. I've been uh, 20 years in Australia and a couple of years in California as well. So I'm recently back to England discovering the joys of winter, <laughs> January and February going, what have I done? I live over in the Peak District, which is fabulous. And I have had a long 20 year plus career in elite sport and business culture coaching. So I'm a psychologist by trade, but I think of myself as a 
culture coach. I guess that people ask me what would be the base mantras that you have. And I think that excellence can be found anywhere. Love is definitely stronger than fear when it comes to performance. Now you work, you work with Gareth Southgate and the, the, the uh, England men's football team. Do you want to tell us what other teams you worked for in the past as well? Yeah, um, I've done a lot of work in um, Australia predominantly in um, Australian rules football teams that many of you may not know anything about, but they're very famous there. New Zealand rugby, uh, rugby league, Australian Olympic teams and some extreme endurance athletes as well. I think one of the first things that anyone hears about when they, when they think about elite sport, a lot of people think, what's it like to be in those rooms? What's it like to be in the dressing room at the semi-final of the World Cup? That stressful environment, I think probably everyone at home is imagining that. What's it like to be there? It's amazing. It's awful. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a mixed bag of emotions, but um, the best way to describe it is in terms of the energy that you know, takes you through that, that period up to going out onto the field. A couple of hours before, it's kind of uh, a really, it's like a, a really quiet, buzzing vibe. People are getting ready. That's the time when they're getting in their own zone. So, you know, it's, it's tunes, it's uh, headphones on, some people sit back, some people clown around, whatever they need to do to, to let go of their energy, to get in the right space for them. There's a lot of sort of side chats between captain and player, between coach and player that might be more tactical or, you know, just making sure people know what's, what's to be achieved. The physios are strapping, the kit men are running around. It's kind of a really interesting, quiet energy, like building energy but lots of activity. And then right before, after the coach speaks, which is usually tactical in orientation in any sport, the pre-address before you go out onto the field of play, it's usually quite tactical, strong emphasis on belief. We love you, whatever happens. That's good stuff to be talking about. And then after that, it's all the backslapping. It's, um, I love that bit, the last few minutes before they get out into the tunnel. It's loud, it's you never get so many hugs in your whole life. It's really sort of boisterous for a minute. And then in the tunnel, it's pin drop silence. And I don't know if anybody remembers that scene from Gladiator where they're all about to go out. And it, it's really like that, apart from the bit where the guy pees down his leg. Not usually that, but <laughs> but it's, it's pin drop. And it's the, the excitement is built so much at that time. And, and it's ready. They're ready at that point. So explain to me what a psychologist might be invited by a rugby team or by an Olympic team. What would be your contribution that you'd be expected to deliver? Um, it varies depending on the team and what's happening. And um, if you're brought in when it's all gone pear-shaped and there needs to be a series of changes or when, if you're brought in to keep the momentum after things are going well. But I guess you do two things. Basically, you're working on helping the individuals in the team, which is coach and player, um, keep a cool head, uh, understand uh, resilience, understand those factors that go into high performance around motivation and good habits and coping, being in the right space. But you're also working on the soul of the team, which is the stuff that never, never, I never put that on a resume, but that's actually what you're doing. You're making sure that the tone is right, that the relationships are solid, that it's not fake that it feels good and that people are genuinely in it together because that's the stuff that wins. That's interesting. I, I guess the soul of the team you might use as sort of synonym as culture or you, like yeah. the, the dynamic. I think when we, you and I have discussed before, you, you mentioned the idea of working through. As a team psychologist, I guess you can't turn up and say, our culture is now this. Yeah. You need to work through other people and you need to be sort of a, a touching direct yeah describe to me things that you might do to work through other people and maybe explain what working through means yeah so in reality you know pe people have an impression of you spending hours a day with um, a player to get something right and the schedule of elite sport is it just doesn't work like that especially in high turnaround sports like football um, or in international where you're on camp and it's there's a lot going on um, so it's so important for me to be able to work through the other people who are frontline. You know, the kit man is definitely a psychologist. <laughs> the physio is a psychologist. The massage person is going to be, you know, spending an hour with somebody working on their back or whatever else or their hamstrings, and they're going to hear a lot. So how do I help them get really good um, at culture? How do I help them do what they imagine I do 
um, and so we connect the dots. So I guess most of the time I'm trying to see patterns and connect dots. And if I'm making everyone else in the staff team, including the coaches, brilliant at culture, we're going to, we're going to be a lot further ahead. Wow. Scott, that's, you've got the, the master, you've got the kit person. What would you do? Is it just about reminding them the culture or are you sort of giving them specific messages? It's both. Um, the, the stories that we tell are just so important around culture. You know, the narrative that, that is underpinning everything is, is massive. So I do a lot of work. Uh, I've done that across my career. A lot of work on explaining who we are, what we're doing, why we're doing it, um, and having everybody else in a position where they can't... I, I don't mean that they can repeat it, but they're into it. So that they, that's natural for what they do to guide the player um, and that they involve the player in that. But also I might be helping, say, the physical prep, you know, the famous unicorns picture or the rubber chickens at training or what, we've, we've, we've got it somewhere. Got the um, unicorn picture here. I, I, get, I get credited with that, but actually that was Bryce Kavanagh, um, who's, our, who's our physical prep guy. It's him in the back of the picture. He's a legend. And, you know, he, when we talk about what is the part of the culture that he wants to, what would he be seeing that was different if, it was, if he was really smashing it? And for him, it would be full engagement and fun. They were having fun, right? So then we work on what, so, so how's that going to look in recovery? You know, because you play a really hard game or you do a really hard training session. Sometimes the last thing somebody wants to do, I can think of many examples across different football codes and sport where the last thing they want to do is recovery. You know, it's like, oh, really? But if you make, like, he needs that to be able to, for them to achieve the next day. Well, recovery is what? Recovery is everything to get your body and mind back in good nick for the next right. next day. Okay. So describe to me the relationship with fun then. So you've got these people in a high-stress environment. Yeah. To some extent, failure on this stage in the past has defined mm-hmm. players' lives to some extent. So the stakes are really high. How on earth do you bring fun to an environment like that? Well, I think it's not as hard as it sounds because people, I'm not just talking about this team, people are hungry for that. This is a hard endeavour to put yourself right on the line and achieve, to get everything you possibly can out of your own locker and and into your performance. And it's it's a tough road for most people. So they're really ready for something different. I think the onus is on the teams and the coaches and the people who work behind the scenes to to bring that and to allow for that. So I think there's a few things. Firstly, give permission. You don't have to create fun. You don't, you know, you put the, create conditions for it and people will find their own fun. Play is very natural to us. I think that's really important. But I think secondly, making sure that people feel that they can be free to be who they are. If you set conditions and the tone or the soul of the team where people feel they've got to be a little bit careful, cautious, you know, they're on guard the whole time, Where's their little bubble of sanctuary where they can just be who they are and they can stuff about and they can have fun? That's so important. And, and you know, laughter, fun, oxytocin, endorphins, it, is a ma- it has massively positive effects on brain chemistry. It lets us just switch out of performance mode because at any time any of us stay in a mode where we're performing all the time, we're going to burn out or... Even if we don't burn out, it's going to be boring or much less fun than it could. I heard you talk about that before, where you said you need to give elite players a space where they're not on stage, where they're not mm. performing. What does that mean? So does that mean them dropping their guard or not being as conscious? What, what does that mean? It means both of those things. And it means being free to be not judged on anything at any point in time. So sometimes that's hard. I think about some Olympic sports I've worked in where you know, that it's a four-year cycle to the next massive performance. Increasingly, like that looming goal, that one opportunity, that one open window seems so big that it, the tension builds and builds. But if they don't switch out of that, they're not going to actually get there in good nick in the first place. So I think having those opportunities where they're not on show, they're not in the public domain, and they're not being judged on something critical... That, that can just look like going to Nando's and going to bed early, right. you know, but how are you not judged for that evening? And elite athletes, everybody wants a piece of them all the time. Everybody wants a piece of them. And they're, they're, my experience of them has been, on the whole, very generous and graceful with it, you know, fans, media, etc. But it's so important that they just have a moment to FaceTime the kids at bath time. 
You mentioned something interesting along the way, which was the variety of approaches, that there's not one size fits all. Mm. And I guess a worse coach or a worse... A worse person trying to facilitate a team might say, this is the way we're going to do it. Mm. And you talk about a variety of approaches mm. there. So is that something that you see different coaches being more or less comfortable with? Definitely. I, I think it's important to say as well, with the younger athletes who are still learning their craft and learning who they are and what works for them, sometimes quite a structured approach matters. But as athletes get more established and they know what works for them, great coaches kind of just let people do their own thing in that in that prep time in the run-up to a game. I think it's a real shame when somebody tries to force a method on people who actually know what works for them. Right. It takes them in the wrong direction, yeah. And so along the way, you've worked with some incredible coaches and mm. some coaches who have achieved incredible things. Can you start to let us understand how the best of them start building a winning culture? What, were, what are the actions they would take to do that? The first thing to say is that the coach in a team is the custodian of the culture. He or she needs to be talking about it. They need to be explaining why it matters, what it is, how it feels. So would they specify, our culture is this? They would, They would. in an ideal situation, they would be specifying, these are the things that we care about. Okay. Um, you can't impose culture, like you can't impose values, but you can inspire them. And storytelling is a great way to do that. Where I've seen coaches tell stories about what matters and why this game can be what it is and why they want to go about something a certain way and what matters to them that usually gets the best outcomes. And I see them also role modelling. I see them role modelling vulnerability. I see them role modelling standards. I see them role modelling tough moments. A coach I really respect in the AFL in Australia. I remember seeing a piece where he had, they just lost the grand final. It was devastating for them. And he, he had a moment of leadership that I think was brilliant culture leadership where he actually said at the end of the game in the rooms where it was dire, he said, I don't know how to lead you now, boys. I don't, at this moment in time, what I can tell you is that I'm super proud of you and I'm inspired by your effort. But right at this moment, I don't know how to lead you. Yeah. And I thought that was wonderful role modeling for culture. Wow, and certainly something that will go forward with those people. Mm. Because when you and I spoke in preparation for one of the multiple attempts I've tried to, <laughs> to, to get you to pin you down, I said it must be really important to build this positive culture, this positive thing, and you immediately sort of demurred for that and said, mm. well, look, resilience is far more important than that. Yeah. And so I, I just want you to, I wonder if you could give us a perspective on how you see the balance of those things and, and why resilience is so important. I think resilience is probably the cornerstone piece in a journey that is uncontrollable, unpredictable, and involves a lot more luck than we're comfortable talking about (laughs) when we talk about performance on the field of play or, or in business, in fact. Resilience for me is about not just the ability to bounce back from something that's gone wrong. Somebody explained it to me once as, you know, the difference between mental toughness and resilience. Toughness is kind of like a block of concrete. It's immovable. It's hard. Whereas resilience is more like a sheet of flexible steel and it's got give in it. And, and I really like that because resilience requires us to have moments where we're on the lower side of okay, as well as the moments where we can come back from that. And I think sometimes we get a little bit caught in the idea that resilience means always positive, always okay, always brilliant. And that's not what it is. When we can approach difficulties with a challenge mindset, when we can know which of our own skills we can draw on to get through something that's difficult or to plan for something that's going to be difficult. And when we can also understand our energy and environment, I think that contributes to resilience. And it's probably as much as anything, it's a concept and a construct, but we can when we have learnt it through experience, I think we start to understand that that's the cornerstone. What do, to what extent as well, for, for young players especially, witnessing the narrative of someone like Gareth Southgate, whose penalty miss in Euro 96 cost, potentially cost England the, the whole tournament, mm. but at least cost them a place in the final. And his story is one that's imbued with this sense of being on a journey that hasn't always had he was fired as a coach from Middlesbrough mm. it's had some downturns as well as upturns just how important is that for the credential of any coach that, that sense that they are flawed and human 
Because does that allow people to access that resilience a bit in a second-hand way? I feel that leaders, when somebody's faced adversity, leaders learn from that or build resilience from that when they have actually reflected on what it means. So where they've been able to understand it, file it, make sense of it and move forward from it. Negative events, a failure, a loss, uh, adversity of any kind doesn't necessarily lead to resilience or doesn't necessarily lead to an improved leader. It has to, there's a piece in the middle which means, how am I going to reflect and make sense of this and put it in its right place? When you talk about a coach who's experienced adversity, I think that the, the critical bit of resilience build is how are they making sense of what happened? But most people who've been on a performance adventure through life or has really gone to the edge of their capabilities and, and strives regularly for excellence, they're going to fall in holes now and then. It's inevitable. It's kind of part of the journey. For a leader to be credible, does failure actually enhance their credibility of their story? Does does it make them more relatable from from a team's point of view? I suspect it does make them more relatable as long as they've worked out the failure, they've learned the lesson, and as long as they can tell the stories about it well. So, you know, failure is one thing. And if we look at, we, we always admire people who've faced into adversity and um, whether they've succeeded or failed, the fact that they've had the courage to face into adversity that most of us wouldn't or couldn't, we admire that. But then if we admire from afar, it's much less powerful than if that person has the vulnerability to stand up and talk about that. And not with loads of gloss in a really real human way to talk about I think Brene Brown taught us lots about vulnerability in that way and, and that sort of idea that if you want to be whole and seen as somebody who can be resilient to things like shame or to resilient to pressure in some ways and you've got to also be willing to be vulnerable. Uh, now I'm a subject of Brené Brown so Brené Brown is world renowned for the, the idea of, of vulnerability and, and maybe leaders and, and everyone showing their their flaws as well as their strengths. Brenny Brown actually quoted your work and, and she, uh, in this speech in Australia, she talked about your work and I think she gave the example about penalty shootouts. She illustrated that the most significant thing in a penalty shootout, that the player who misses the penalty isn't fearing being rejected by the group. Right. And is, is that right? What did she talk about and why was she mentioning that? Why was she talking about it? Yeah. I really felt like I'd arrived when she talked about that. What she said, basically, it was a conference in Australia or a session she did in Australia, and she said that her observations of what happened last summer were that it wasn't necessarily the fact that somebody had worked out how to keep a cool head while the person's, you know, putting it in the bottom left, top right, whichever, but it was more about the the fact that um, the level of risk that you had to take at that moment was buffered um, and improved your ability to do that was improved by the fact that you knew you'd still be loved whatever the outcome was you'd still be worth something you wouldn't be rejected you wouldn't be less you would have had a failure in the moment but you wouldn't be less that's really interesting because oxytocin the, the chemical that you mentioned before has this strange impact it's sort of the, the love hormone so mm-hmm. oxytocin it makes us feel immense connection with people i suspect all the touching that you describe in the run-up to a game is all about oxytocin, but it also makes us immensely tribal. So, you know, mums with babies have loads of oxytocin, but that means they're very protective of their baby and they're sort of hostile to people around. And I suspect then if someone misses a penalty, there's a risk, if you, if you get it wrong, that the oxytocin will force that player away from the group. Yeah, definitely. And I think about um, the Rugby World Cup, the England one, the Johnny Wilkinson kick and things like that you know where there's there's smart things to understand about the psychology where if that person whatever the outcome for that person is how are they connected to the group before and after the event you know oxytocin's huge in that if somebody feels like okay I can go back to my pack or I'm coming from my pack I'm standing with my pack at that moment that's that bond is critical so it's it's a it's a big deal an immensely male world chosen to work in (laughs) You know, all of these professions are filled with masculinity, testosterone. What's it like to be a woman in, in those environments? Yeah. The, the women's game's coming. It's coming. It's, yeah, it's been a really interesting journey. I mean, it's, I've got to say at the outset that on the whole, I've felt really welcome and respected 
most of the time, but it's, it is weird. It is weird. You know, I can think of a time with the um, rugby league guys in New Zealand where their ritual is to, when you join the team, you have to sing at the front of the bus. Still makes my heart lurch when I think about that. And, um, and you also, they do a haka and you're in the middle, but you're in the middle in your undies. And so I'm like, okay, we need to adjust this slightly. <laughs> so, so I'm in the middle and they're doing the haka around me, which is an amazing privilege. It's an amazing sort of welcome and embodiment. You're embodying the team you're in, your family. But I didn't do the undies. So, so you know, you, there are things where they kind of go, okay, how do, we do, how do we do this with her? Because quite often I am the only woman or I love it when there's another one or two women in the staff group and generally that is a sanctuary for them too. There's many times where they sort of initially they, they sort of think, uh, okay, we don't know what to do with you. You know, I think the fact that I've got doctor in front of my name and people don't know what psychologists do makes it like I'm even more weird and scary initially. But actually, I think the, the way I operate as a woman and the difference has created enough of a pause in the hyper-masculine environments for me to do good work. I think that they've, they've been willing to sort of cock their ear and listen for a minute longer, maybe, because of the difference. That's just the door opener. If you can't operate in that world after that, you know, you need to be able to adapt and adjust and so do they. But there's many times where I've sat on the kit box outside the rooms that otherwise you're going to get a 21 bum salute. And I'm like, this is not good for anybody. I'm just going right. <laughs> to... So you have to be very mindful a lot of the time of those differences and super respectful of the athletes in that respect. And I think that that pays dividends. And sometimes it is, it's a hard thing to walk into a... In Australia, working in Aussie Rules to walk into the coach's box and sit in the coach's box with another six guys who are going to be chucking Coke cans and highly emotional and, you know, stressed and all sorts of things. It's a hard thing to walk in there and feel that you fit. And I do I feel like I fit? Um, I usually feel like a visiting pilgrim, <laughs> not quite fully belonging in the, in the boisiness, but, but that difference is why I can do good work. There's a really interesting book by a guy called Owen Slot called The Talent Code, and it sort of looks at Olympic athletes and their performance. And the one thing I was saying to you was that they looked at British athletes, and um, in the analysis they did, 16 of the super elite athletes, so these are people who are meddling at gold, had experienced critically challenging events in their development, which was a death of a parent or a suicide attempt or bullying but only four of the elite athletes are the ones a level below had. And so I was saying that this, this is a sign that, you know, it, almost specifically, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm-hmm. But I think you had an interesting take on that. Yeah. I, I was saying that, you know, that there's been some um, parallel research to show that while that may be statistically true and certainly, you know, the ability to overcome and, and make sense of a negative event and add it to your resilience pantheon, you know, is, is a valuable thing. What that research doesn't actually show is how many of those young people had a really strong mentor or had family relationships that were very supportive when, you know, not necessarily with a parent, but extended family relationships or coach relationships that really helped them overcome or had some other factor of stability and coping that really helped them. If we only look specifically at the adversity or the tragedy that somebody went through and don't look at all of the things that help them get through that we get quite a skewed picture so it's not just the the talent gene or the talent code per se albeit important it's always broader than that right and the importance then of great mentorship great coaching yeah just looking at those stats trauma doesn't lead to a champion it's it's you know survivors not in isolation Yeah. yeah yeah Also, the working through model for me is about seeing through. It's, it's tough work doing culture work. It's isolating work, as, as we've talked about. I think seeing through is about knowing what you want that might not be on the page, knowing what you're really going after. How many plans do we know really that say you want people to feel less fatigued at the end of the day or more willing to be vulnerable or that the soul of the team seems a bit better? It's just not going on the plan for most organisations or teams. 
So I think an important thing for a culture coach is to be able to see beyond and keep their eye on that beyond and know that nobody's going to understand that for now. And it'll only be understood really retrospectively in most cases when it's proven and done, and then they won't remember how you did it. <laughs> tell me this, from your perspective, can you improve the culture but lose a game? Is it like a long-term thing? It absolutely is a long game, yeah. You can improve the culture and lose a game. The example I gave of Coach Nathan Buckley before was a culture improvement. And you can win lots of games and not improve the culture at all because winning is not the same as good culture. The two go hand in hand and they're not necessarily quite causal. You know, culture doesn't cause winning. But sustained winning is absolutely underpinned by good culture. There's a really interesting thing. I spent some time this summer studying sort of the culture that Jurgen Klopp had built mm. at Liverpool. And one of the first things he did when he went to Dortmund, his team before Liverpool, is he told the people around him, he, he said, we need to move the culture from me to we. Yeah. We need to move the culture from everyone feeling like they're individually outstanding athletes to people feeling like they're part of something bigger than themselves. Mm-hmm. But where does the line with we end? Is that the 11 players on the pitch or the, the 22 players in the squad? Or is that those people plus the coaches? Or, is, or where does it end? I think the strongest teams I've seen, there is a we that is um, the whole performance group. When somebody crosses the threshold and goes onto the field of play, it's them, isn't it? There's, you know, there's nothing the coach can do from, you know, from the sideline at that point or the psychologist or anybody else, in fact, can do at that moment. It's them. But if they have an understanding that they belong in something bigger, they have an identity connected to more people that are absolutely looking at the same things that they are absolutely sharing their dreams and there for them, good, bad or ugly, that is extremely helpful in maintaining a sense of motivation, especially when things aren't going very well. So for me, great culture looks like all of us, but then there are moments in time where you pass the baton to the captain or the leadership group and, you know, in business, the the unit that's doing the work and know that they know that you're standing on their shoulder, even if you're not physically there doing the work with them. Because one thing Jurgen Klopp did is that he used to take his players, because he had one issue at one stage where fans had been leaving the game before the end. He introduced something where at the end of the games he would take the players to to cheer the uh, support. The England team did that to some extent, but it, it went beyond the players. There was physios on the pitch, there was medics on the pitch, I'm not sure if you were on the pitch, but the, the broad... Uh, the wider team was there, which is an interesting mindset, isn't it? Because it's it's trying to label that there's a whole there's a whole family that's producing all of this. What would be the, the mentality that goes into a decision like that? I think the idea that a broader group than the people who have just won or lost. So you know, all of us are in it, and if you know that people are in the trenches with you genuinely, then there's a a sense of safety created by that, a sense of home, a sense of belonging that's very comforting for people. I think the England cricket team this year as well have shown some really good examples of that sort of team behind the team or team within the team that have been super beneficial. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is brought to you in association with Perkbox.com. You'll have heard that Perkbox have been sponsoring the latest series of episodes, but how could they help you? Well, Perkbox have made a platform designed to help you motivate and recognize your team. That includes measuring the engagement of your employees, rewarding superstar workers, and providing a flexible healthcare benefit to support your employees' well-being. If you're looking to improve the employee experience, Perkbox is the place. Find out more at perkbox.com. You put me onto um, a book that had a quotation by Ted Hughes in it. And the quotation by Ted Hughes, the poet, was that it was, it was something like the memories... Help me out. What, what was the quotation? Something it was something like the memories that are the worst for us... Are the best to remember. Are the best to remember. Mm. And it's a degree of that, right? That almost those, those bad experiences define us. They build the resilience in us. Yeah. As long as you make sense of the lesson. So, you know, if you think about... How many, if, if a team's failed, if a team's had a shocking season or, or successive shocking seasons, and then we just say, okay, let's, let's just learn from that and move on. Well, you know, what's changed? The reflection hasn't happened to understand why it didn't go well or what you want to do with that failure. And failure is very instructive for what you do next. Failure is a brilliant teacher, um, but, you know, it's a, it's, a hard teacher because you only work it out after the fact. You've got to go through the test before um, and the pain before you sort of work it out. But that's so important that, you know, we actually spend the time to make the lesson of what happened. When I've done this many times in different sports, but when um, you come back off a big event, a World Cup or an Olympics or something like that, the emotional hangover work that we do is really important. So you do that work if you've won or lost right? How do I make meaning out of this? What are the lessons I'm going to take out of this? Because it's too easy to go, it's done, full stop, move on, whether it's good or bad, you know, because of the exhaustion and because you, you're um, emotionally drained. So you leave it sometime, come back and make sense of it. You, you make the lesson with emotional hangover work. Tell me, when you first get involved in the team, are there any things that you immediately look for or what are the characteristics of really successful teams that you maybe try and introduce? Yeah. First thing I always look for is the quality of relationships. Um, two things, actually. Who's, who's in good relationships and where are the relationships sour or tense or not yet connected? Because that's everything in high-performing teams. It's relationship work. Um, and the second thing I look for is where the power is. Um, and the power isn't necessarily with the top guy or the, you know, the coach or captain. The power might be in a really, an, an old hand, a veteran, somebody with real battle scars who's very revered in the team or feared in the team. Or it might be with somebody who's really disruptive in a team, who's a troublemaker and gets in the way of culture, but nobody knows how to deal with them. So I look for where, who's got the real power and the quality of relationships, because I think unraveling those two things is, is key. And what, and what would you do in that situation? So you identify, you've looked at the power of communication, you work out how you're going to get communication improving. But those, the, the power, what, what would you even start to do? You address it. You've got to name it. That's where, that's where the courage bit comes in because it's not always about sort of glorious efforts and big speeches or brave moves straight up. It's how will I find the moment to go address something? with the coach, with the coaches, because they're always the playmakers in culture. How will I bring this up? Not whether I'll bring it up, but how will I bring this up? How will I draw attention to this? And you've got to do it with passion, but compassion too. It's a non-negotiable, but do it with loads of love and support. And the idea of me as an ally for getting better, but you've got to actually name what's not right. You mentioned it's like a broader family. How important is the leader specifically in hammering things home then? Because I feel like it feels like there's a balance where it's not just one individual, but then to some extent there's moments where it really probably is one individual. The leader, the coach, is the leader of the culture. He is the author 
and this orator or she, um, the orator for the culture. And I think that that's a really important role of the leader in any team, in business or in sport. If that person is the storyteller and uh, leading people in a direction, then it's very easy for other people to follow. So yes, it is ours. You know, it's the performance groups. And there are moments where the player or the individual business performer is there on the line. But actually, that sense of the, the culture being narrated by the leader is critical. And tell me this, that, I want to get a quite a vivid story in my head. So we talk about storytelling, but has the leader been quite intentional about thinking what story I'm going to tell right now or the way I'm going to try and create this moment? When you were describing the scene in a dressing room before, my heart was beating. <laughs> I can't imagine what it's like to be in there and it's real life. The leader must have thought about these moments, I'd have thought. Yeah, I I can think of some examples, you know, in Olympic sport, particularly where this is crafted a long time in advance. Well, two things, the practice of standing and talking intimately and authentically about how they feel and what they care about and why they're proud and what didn't go well and honestly giving feedback that's useful. That practice is really important. If you have a situation where the leader goes missing in terms of the the storytelling and in terms of speaking about the culture and describing what's happening, even though it might seem obvious, that can be really detrimental in moments of high pressure and high performance. If, If a leader defers to doing the technical work, if a leader goes and sits in the middle of the orchestra rather than conducts out the front. That can be really detrimental because people need that guidance at that point of pressure. It seems like such a simple thing, um, such a almost a humble thing to do to stand and talk about what's happening when people can clearly see what's happening. But it's immensely powerful in my view. It's almost like then this leadership and building this cultural leadership, these broad thematic things that extend behaviours we we support, actions we take, what our culture consists of. But then it's about being very intentional that there are going to be some real high point moments Mm. and we need to be very clear about what we want that moment to feel like and look like. Yeah, definitely. Thinking about a couple of Australian teams that I worked with where things were pretty pear-shaped at half-time. Two different examples of how coaches dealt with that and one where the coach was a more extroverted, really strong orator and stood at the front of the room and spoke Churchillian-like about you know what he was proud of and what, what he believed in in the team and it gave them enough to get back out there and focus so that they could carry on the game. Another person who was much less extroverted but really highly regarded and highly loved and respected by the players, sat, took a chair and sat in the middle of the circle of players at halftime and just said, boys, what do you think we need to do next? Okay. Here's, what, here's the story I'm seeing unfolding. Here's what my view is, but you're out there with the mud on your boots. What do you think? But he still narrated the story. He still orchestrated the story. Yeah, because in moments, you know, I suspect all of us have moments where we feel more or less introverted or extroverted. That big, tub-thumping shout from the hilltops seems quite daunting as a prospect for us as a yeah. leader to go, yeah. I need, number one, I need all the answers. I need to be really convincing and quite lyrical in the way mm. I say them. It. It's quite a daunting prospect. Whereas that second model, which seems... I think probably more easily accessible. Does that work as effectively? It works if it's true for you. Right. The whole strength in the ability to tell stories and be believed is if you're being yourself, if the player can feel you as authentic. Players like most of us can smell a fake a mile off. They don't respond to inauthenticity or over-engineered, over-glossed dramatics. But if that person is genuinely impassioned at that moment and is likely to be fairly extroverted normally, I imagine that's how Klopp normally is. He describes himself that way, even in the podcast that you you had done. I think that if that's his way, then that's the right way to address it. If it's not the next person's way, do it your way. It's an interesting 
thing that we were also talking about before, which is the power of oxytocin. And oxytocin is the sort of the love hormone. If we activate it, we feel this affinity with the group. And so I suspect if you're doing your job well, then there's oxytocin activated and people feel incredibly bonded. One of the other elements of oxytocin is um, witness a mum with a baby. There's an incredible bond, but the mum is incredibly protective of anyone else. She's not extending love to the wider world. So it's like this, it's tr- tribal. And so the thought, the challenge of say an England football team, is that you've got day-to-day these people who might play for Manchester United, Liverpool, Manchester City, and the oxytocin in their system there is telling them to hate each other. And then you gather them together for a tournament. Suddenly, this person they've been told they need to hate, suddenly they've been told, okay, I need to feel an affinity. How do you overcome that sense of inner conflict? Yeah, I I saw this probably most voraciously in Olympic sports where people were literally competing with each other for funding or a spot on the team, but they were supposed to be a team and they were going to the Olympics or the next guy. And that was very tough. But I think the only thing you can possibly do is elevate it to an identity that is, in that case, a national identity that is bigger than the individual identities or areas that they come from. So if there is something that is that they want to belong to that is appealing, that they can love and that they can connect to in a really deep and meaningful way and feel that the people who went before them and the people that came after them will still will also believe deeply in that thing, it's precious. That's probably the only thing from an oxytocin point of view that can generate that level of quick loyalty in terms of well-being the that is also something that they feel good about, which, you know, there's, no, there's less struggle in mm. that. Now, I saw this picture, and uh, w- when there was an article uh, about the, the England journey to the semi-final of the World Cup, this picture came out, and I'll, I'll, I'll describe it for the people who can't see it. So this is a series of England players on inflatable unicorns appearing to have a magnificent tie. I, I don't know what you're allowed to say and what you're not allowed to say. How would a situation like this come about? What's the thinking when something like this happens? I need to say, first of all, I did not do the unicorns. <laughs> that was Bryce Kavanagh, who's a physical prep guy. He's a genius, and that was his idea. The idea for anything like that, you know, whether it's this team or in, in many others where we've done similar things over time, is that can you, can you create the conditions for somebody to have a laugh? Can you allow people to release tension and to just feel like, okay, we're done with that performance. We can reset. We can have some fun. We can just be. We can just have a moment where we don't have to be on show, where we don't have to be perfect, where we don't have to be striving to achieve something. We can just stuff about. One of my favourite examples was before um, the New Zealand-Australia Rugby League World Cup final in 2013, we we were a few days out from a massive game. I was with New Zealand. There was a lot of tension in the camp. The arrangement was that we were going to go to a haunted house. In like, it was in London. We were going to go to a haunted house. So we've got this, these enormous, burly, tough guys. Who, a lot of those men had had quite tough upbringings and they were resilient, to say the least, and physically very, very robust. But on the bus on the way to the haunted house, there was all manner of giggling. And all sorts of like, okay, I'm not going at the front. You're going to go at the front. And, you know, and, um, and even the, I had to go at the front, which is pathetic. Um, and I have never heard such high pitched screams in my life, but it was just such an enormous tension release. You know, they had heaps of fun for a half hour and then had a Nando's and, you know, went home and went to bed. And it was a couple of days out from a game and it was a really good reset. Sometimes I think we drive really hard for just like the next thing. We've got to stay focused and stay in the zone. But in reality, we can't even stay focused for more than 90 minutes, you know. So it's a ridiculous idea. We have to understand the flux of our psychologies um, and our ability to stay in an emotional state is not static. We've got to surf with it. Those moments where we can create fun or an opportunity for to break out of the deep focus are hugely powerful in performance. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I guess if you were sitting there and you're scribbling notes today, you'd be like, yeah, it's all about those leadership moments, all about the hitting people with this sort of powerful leadership message. But it's almost, 
you've got to think exactly like you say of like the flow where's the moment mm. where everyone can just relax and things yeah. don't matter yeah you describe it to me as like the other 22 hours did you describe it yeah as that? that's that actually that's that was um a term uh, bryce used as well the other 22 hours is sort of an idea that your, your actual peak performance moments whether it's in business or in sport are relatively small in comparison to what you're doing with the rest of the day and if we try and stay in a performance zone all the time no quicker route to burnout or boredom than that so we have to recognize that there's off time Mm. there is a peak performance time there's a build-up and readiness time and there's an off time and a recovery time and that's the same for all of us in life you know if we don't get think of recovery time if we don't get adequate sleep and nutrition we're not recovering properly but if you don't have moments of freedom from your performance you're unlikely to be able to garner the same kind of levels of performance and input than you could if you take the break now i guess that brings us on to how there can be dysfunctions in leadership and football managers and sporting coaches always seem to have such intensity you know they're almost they're not permitted to be seen laughing in fact you know you occasionally get footage of people on the bench of a football game laughing and fans are unforgiving of that Mm. When it comes to having that balance, having that downtime, are managers getting better at modelling that the sort of the balance in their own performance? Same, same question for CEOs and mm, CFOs. Yes, specifically that. <laughs> I think that the more that we understand about how performance works physically and psychologically, the more that's got to be a no-brainer. One thing that I talk about is psychological space, which is the idea that it's not just the things that you add to your calendar that you will do, like go for a walk at lunchtime or make sure you have breakfast. They're important, but it's also where is the time for psychological space? And that Meaning what? Psychological space to me is, is sort of a mental freedom. It's about where you uh, can be something other than a performer for that moment in time, where you genuinely turn off. For some people, that looks like, okay, I'm having a mindful half hour. Other people, that might look, look like I'm going to be a mum or a partner for for the evening and the rest of it's turned off Mm. kind of thing. And I think that's super important. And while it may be the thing that we don't spend as much time on, the rarity of the time spent on psychological space is almost higher value than the time we spend on on the foundational pieces of physical stuff like sleep or nutrition or exercise. And I guess the challenge is it it appears to have lower return to it. It's it's almost the benefit you get from that psychological space is almost intangible and invisible. Yeah, or it's hard to measure, isn't it? As most things in culture and psychology are actually quite hard to measure, but we know how it feels, right? If you have moments where you don't feel consumed by performance, if you have moments where you find yourself daydreaming or having a laugh or engaged in something else that's just more spacious for you, we know how that feels. I think it's really important that we don't try and quantify everything that goes into performance, well-being or culture, because a lot of the stuff in that field is not quantifiable and we actually reduce it too much when we try. You've been, on the subject of that really, you've been at this sort of semi-final of the World Cup pretty much other than a final the biggest sporting event in the world mm. you've also worked in fast fashion you've worked you worked in a real job that people here can connect with give us the things that we should be right in drawing inferences from and what are the cautionary notes what are the things how is sport completely different to business and how is it similar to business um a couple of things on how is it completely different one thing about sport is that the the performance cycle is very clear the grand final or the you know the um, the last game of the season is on a set day and you know therefore that the build up to that if there is ramped up energy and intense focus for a period of time towards that you know there's an end point and then there's a summer break or a winter break ideally <laughs> there would be a winter break in football it's coming so you can commit to the build up because there's a timeout Whereas in business, the cycles of performance don't tend to work like that. You know, there, it's, it's ongoing. Once you've had a great quarter, the next quarter starts the next day. Your numbers might be, might be good today. You might be rating green today, but tomorrow you're in another cycle. So there isn't the downtime, I think, or the, the natural cycle of performance is finishing in business as there is in sport, which if you try and approach it the same way of like that ramped up hyper-focused energy for a period of time, the Olympic performance, 
I think it's a, a quick road to burnout. Okay. Another thing is in sport, the cause of poor performance is quite visible. It's between the buzzers, it's on the court, the coach is watching it and, and you know, potentially you can see exactly what went wrong and give feedback to correct it. In business, there are many more variables to performance and I think that causal feedback, therefore, is, is a bit more complicated. It's super important to get very good at describing and exploring why something worked or didn't in business that's, that's a little mm. bit more concrete. Mm. In, um, in football, perhaps, or in sport, perhaps. Perhaps I can talk about the similarities. Yeah, cool. I think in both, we can get a little bit drawn into ideas that you have to be perfect, which for me is a myth, but you have to be, let's just say, really excellent at performance and at well-being all the time. And in reality, both of those things are in flux at all times. And there may be periods where you really push hard. Um, it's a, a big performance moment in either and well-being drops and there may be moments where you can elevate well-being and performance your results aren't where you want them to be i think it's really important for leaders to recognize that it's always in flux and that's okay and normal and not try and sort of be perfect at both mm. at all times you know we give ourselves a hard time on that you know when we talk about wellness the idea of wellness for me isn't just being relaxed or a feeling of sort of composure and quietness inside Sometimes wellness can come out of huge, big, epic adventures, sense of vitality and passion and things in our business lives or our, our um, sporting lives that create great tension, positive stress and like, I don't know if I can do this. They can be really big wellness factors. I think maybe the debate about wellness has got a little bit skewed to just when we're quieter or off. But wellness for me can also be all of that vitality that comes with a big So almost a moment of stress, if it's, if it's not <clears throat> habitual, if it's brief and leads to an accomplishment, that can be consistent with a, a wellness programme. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, th I think there are important considerations that, you know, it's, it's all of it, isn't it? It's our human experience. And, you know, so there are things that are parallel, but the environments are different. Um, the cycles of it are different. And maybe the commonalities are that, you know, we should try not to be perfect and recognise that there are the big adventures are as, as much a, a factor in how we're doing and, and our well-being as, as anything else. Boredom's, boredom's not good for well-being. Is, is the one thing that has always characterised the very best, the most successful teams, that when you look at things and you go, that's the one thing you need to sort first, to get a good culture in a team? Relationships. Right. Yeah, the common theme for sustained performance, you, you know, you may have, a, um, if you don't have great relationships, you may have a honeymoon period, say, with a new coach or a star player or amazing talent where you can get performance over a season or two. I think you could say the same in business. Um, but sustained performance for the truly greats is about relationships. And there's an, an enormous protective element to quality relationships that are characterised by care and intimacy. It doesn't mean friendship, but it means you know that that person is going to be authentic and that there's going to be an exchange that's compassionate. Those things are enormously protective for well-being, but also for performance. And I've seen that time and time again, where the relationships are fickle, fake or too agendered it is much less stable than where there is a true bond and the relationships are, are solid fantastic well thank you so much for your time today i, I think it's worth saying that pippa's uh, i don't think she's she's done one interview before but for someone to not only have, have gone into such a male dominated world but also to succeeded and to change the culture at such a, a, a visible and, and extraordinary level is just a real testament to, to what incredible skills you've got. So I'm so thrilled that you've joined and shared that with us today. Thanks, Thank you please. so much. Thank you so much to Pippa. The transcript of that full episode is on the website eatsleepworkrepeat.com. Pippa's outgoing from the FA as I say this, and I can't wait to see what she does next. If you do like this, you may like some of our recent other episodes. You may want to share the episode Nine Lies About Work. That's a, a good place to start a discussion about what you're going to do and what you're not going to do at work. Maybe if your culture at work needs a bit more vavavoom, the Jurgen Klopp episode might be the one to share. 
Best way to stay in touch is to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I also do a fortnightly email that you can sign up to at eatsleepworkrepeat.com. I've been Bruce Taisley. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.